0: Everyone. Welcome to the new season of For the Love of Books podcast featuring Indian small press authors with host author Emma Polova. I would like to thank our sponsors, Doug Chavant, the Lowell Ledger, our hometown newspaper in Lowell, and author Jen Rinaldi. Today I will be chatting with author Wendy Thompson about her book, The Man from Burnt Island. Wendy will announce the details of her book giveaway at the end of the interview. Wendy Thompson is a multi-award five-star author of Summon the Tiger, The Third Order, The Man from Burnt Island, Ted and Ned, and a contributor to the anthology Postcards from the Future. Hello, Wendy. How are you on this lovely spring day? I am fine. How are you, Emma? Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Happy to have you. Can you give us a brief summary of The Man from Burnt Island? The Man from
1: Burnt Island is a historical novel based on the life of my grandfather. Uh, I call it historical fiction because I had to link all the facts that I found um, of how it happened to be. So there's a ton of real real fact in there. However, um, I had to suppose some things. Right. Um, he was born in 1899 the the protagonist he was born seventh of eight children in Scotland um very poor family a very poor family um he was a bit of a rabble-rouser apparently he's told me that um <laughs> okay and yeah. and he when world war 1 broke out he got on his bicycle and rode 20 miles so he's from Spife, Scotland Fife Scotland is tiny it's 20 miles across and uh-huh. Scotland's very tiny. You could fit three Scotland's in the state of Michigan. So everyone kind of knew him. They had little teeny towns. And so he had to go to where he wasn't known. And he went to St. Andrew's where were the golf course is. And he um, lied about his age and lied about his name. And he listed in World War One. He was 15. He was 15. He was 15. Um and anyway, he ended up in the trenches in France. Oh wow! Why did he want to enlist? He, well, actually, there was an. I I I read this. I hired a, a um, researcher to try to uh-huh. find his records. Sure. And you couldn't make much money in the coal mines back then. Um. And the the British army was advertising. 35 pounds a month if you if you could be a driver for the war, which was Ooh. about like what his whole family made every month in the mines, in the mines. So, and, you know, when you're 15 in the when you're 15, you think, hey, I'll, I can do that. Well, yeah, not sure. Not anyway. He survived the trenches. He got back. And after the war in Scotland, it was the economy tanked. It was there was just no work. Yeah, people were leaving in droves. Um, he wanted to stay because of his sweetheart. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He he actually got married, um, but he had a hard time keeping a decent job to to support his family. It wasn't unusual; it was not unusual at the time. Uh-huh. So, um, between World War One and World War II, most of his family, all of his family, kind of dribbled out of Scotland and went to Canada and ended up in the Detroit area. So he decided he was going to follow. Um, he left on my father's first birthday, um, came across, got to Montreal. Anyway, his timing was the worst. He, His family was in Detroit. He got here three weeks before the, the 1925 immigration law was passed. He went to the border, uh, on a Saturday to try to immigrate, the, the bill was passed by Congress on a Friday. Uh-huh. It was signed by the president on a Saturday, okay. and it went into effect at 12.01 a.m. on Monday morning because they didn't want a huge influx of people. Well, he, that Saturday he went to the border. He went to the Windsor border and applied to immigrate. And it didn't get to the clerk's office until after 12.01 Monday morning. So he was debarred. He could not come. He could not come. He could not come. So when his quota number finally came up, it was three weeks before the Great Depression hit Hmm. in October of 1929. So he was just hit with bad timing and all these events that he couldn't control um, during the Depression, his father died. Three of his older brothers died. Um, one sister went back to Canada. A brother and a sister went back to Scotland. They couldn't make it. They couldn't oh make God. it in Detroit during the Depression. Um, but he did. He did. Frank did. He, fi- he made it. But the price of him making it personally and with his relationships, it took a hit, you know, and it's very interesting. People who have read it, they either think it's kind of like a Horatio Alger story or they hate the guy.
0: They hate the guy because
1: he put he was he wasn't going to be poor anymore. And he put everything second to his being able to make a lot of money. Oh, okay. and, you know, I understand where he came from. Now, from a personal standpoint, he was a wonderful grandfather. I, he was an amazing grandfather. But as I started to dig into it, his business affairs were, let's just say, pragmatic.
0: They were pragmatic. very pragmatic. And right, I like that word.
1: So anyway, um. He actually ended up owning his own company. He was a hard, hard worker. He and he lived till he was over a hundred. Oh, really? That is cool. Yeah, my my 37 year old son, who was born in 1986, remembers this man who was born in 1899. Wow. Yeah, he must right yep, since he lived yep. to be 100. Yep. What kind of a company did he own? It was a rigging and erecting company. They were responsible for moving heavy things, mm-hmm. um, heavy construction. Like okay. for instance, uh, the company he was with before he had his own, he was a senior vice president. Um, they moved the Spirit of Detroit in place in front of the uh, the city of Detroit mm-hmm. building. Um, in order to do that, he got in really deep with the Teamsters, which was, ended up his downfall, actually. Um, they were a rather unsavory bunch. Unsavory bunch. Yeah. So, yeah, and it, it kept on going. You know, my dad, um, ended up being Jimmy Hoffa's dentist. Why? Because of my grandfather, you know, uh. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right, this is very interesting. <laughs>
1: so it's loaded with a lot of Detroit history. Um, Sounds like it, sure. It took me two years to do the research. It took me a lot to do the research.
0: How long did it take you to write it?
1: Well, I would say start to finish two years because... For instance, I'd start to write it and I what I knew and then I have to put it aside to, to go do some research. Right. Like for instance, my father said it back in Scotland, my grandfather raced whippets. I didn't know racing whippets was a thing. So mm-hmm. I had to go research racing okay. whippets. And All then right. I had to then I had to hire this guy to find the um the 42nd Black Watch records in France. And this researcher was wonderful. He found them. So I had to research World War One. And then I had to research the, the economy in Scotland between the two world wars. Then I had to research what happened during the depression and that whole, you know, all the laws and the quota thing. I had to research all of that. So right. I would write, I, I would write until I had, had to do a dead stop uh-huh. and then I'd go do my research to the next section. Okay. And then I'd write some more till I hit the next stop Then I would do
0: the, you know. Yeah, right.
1: Anyway, they built a house down in Garden City. Uh, it took my grandfather two years. It was my grandfather, my dad, and my grandfather's brother-in-law, the three of them. The house is still standing. I took my dad down there to to look at it, you know, like, I don't know, 70-some years later. Mm-hmm. Um, hand-built. My dad's job was to cut cut the mortar off a reclaimed brick and to – knock the nails out of reclaimed wood because they would scavenge at night to get the materials to build this house. It was during the Depression.
0: During the Depression. So. Wow. So lots of history, right? Lots of research went into this book. So the yep. total research and writing time was two years, right? Yes. The total time. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Wow wow wow. So what inspired this whole project? Was there like an initial spark that went off in your head? You've always been meaning to write this off or how did it Well, I
1: the more I pondered it, I decided that it was I didn't even know what a remarkable story was cuz he wouldn't talk about it. Oh. He wouldn't talk about it.
0: Your dad
1: or your grandfather, they wouldn't talk my, about it? My grandfather would not talk about it. At now, all. My, no, I, he just wouldn't talk about it until he was 96. He wouldn't talk about it. And when he got to be in his 90s, um, something changed in him. When we were growing up, he, I mean, my father gave me little clues, right? Like my right. he said, your your grandfather said Scotland had never done anything for him. Right. But then when he was in his 90s, and his local newspaper came and interviewed him, some of the story started coming out. So my dad was living with me um, and I asked him about his life. And there's a lot more of the story that came out of what life was like when my dad was very young. And so I thought, well, I have two sons Um, and I got very intrigued about the, the story of this immigrant. And so I thought I would leave a legacy to my my two sons, right. you know, the kind of grit that they come from. I mean, just pure determination and grit.
0: Yes. Wow. What was your son's reactions? What were their reactions to the book, your sons, when it came well, out? This, this is really
1: funny. They both have copies of it, but they both have young children um they both have uh they both have sons born in 2020 and they both have children born in 2022 and they're young (laughs) and they're working they have really don't have time so they didn't they have have them they have the book but it's one of those things that you know we'll read it but they're busy with babies that won't sleep through the night so
0: oh oh sure well Eventually,
1: right? Well, they have it. That's the whole thing. They have yes, it.
0: They have it. You wrote it. That's the most important part. Okay. How old were you when you started writing in your life?
1: Um. You know, it's interesting you should say that because until I really started th- talking about it, had you asked me that 10 years ago, uh-huh. I would have said, I, I'm a financial person. I haven't written. But that's not exactly true. Okay. back Back when I was 20 years old, um, that's another story that's out there, but my, my dad decided to buy a freighter, and I ended up being a navigator, and it's a long, long story, but I ended up <laughs> with a literary agent from New York because one of my dad's drinking buddies happened to be Sloan Wilson. And Sloan Wilson was a nasty man. I I mean, it was just negative and And insulting, his wife was lovely, Um, but he wrote, he told this literary agent I could write. So that was when I was 20. That didn't go anywhere, but that was like, apparently the first spark. And then all through my career, when you're in business, you have to write, well, if you've got an office job at all. So I, I, you know, I wrote procedure manuals. I, you know, I wrote PowerPoint presentations. I wrote, I wrote strategy papers. I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. Uh-huh. But I never thought, I never thought of myself as a writer. So I was a uh, an officer at a nonprofit, and I was driving home one day after I had quit because I couldn't stand the politics. I had been retired and I didn't like the politics. So I saw a sign on this elementary school saying they were looking for a substitute teachers. So I was on the phone with one of my sons at the time. And I said, well, maybe that's what I'll do now that I'm not this officer at this nonprofit. Maybe I'll become a substitute teacher. I'll have my summers off. I love to go. Yeah,
0: sure. And he
1: said, no. I said, why? He said, you'd hate us. We were terrible. I said, well, what should I do then? Dear son of mine. He said, write a book. Write a book about your life and your, the lessons you've learned. So I did. That was my first book. It was in 2016. Um, it was kind of a fun thing to do in the winter. So the next winter I started another book. And it's so I it's not been a book a year, because that's been, but it's been not that far. I've got five books out now. Oh, okay. if you include so sure. if, you in, if you include the the um anthology so and i'm working on one but it's a slow go but i'm working on another
0: one very cool that your own son suggested that you write that out that's wow that's cool so what was the biggest challenge in writing the man from burnt island
1: um to figure out who this man was really was rounded right so I had this wonderful grandfather that would, you know, leave us clues like treasure hunts before he went to work when we were down there for the summer, uh-huh. um, and make us beautiful doll cradles and just a, a, this really super person. Uh-huh. But when I started to delve into how he had what he must have done or what he probably had to do to get there. It was almost, it was a real revelation. He, he was a two-sided man. He, it reminded me of the Sopranos. of so not that murderous or anything and not that mm-hmm. criminal, but here is this person who was so family oriented, who was such a wonderful grandfather who doted on us. He turned around and he went into business and he did shady deals with the Teamsters, you know, and, and then he come back and be this wonderful doting grandfather. I remember one of the happiest times of my childhood. I would crawl up on his lap and he would rub my back. And I remember thinking if I don't move, if I don't even breathe much, maybe he'll not stop. You know, I, I just love this guy, but to find out that he had this other side of him Mm -hmm. um, and, and digging into that and putting together that story. I mean, for instance, Emma, so I know, The paperwork tells me he came October 5th, 1929. The Mm -hmm. paperwork also tells me that he bought a piece of property in Garden City, undeveloped a piece of property in 1933. What immigrant who had to drop out of school when he was 12 years old, Mm -hmm. what in Detroit, which was one of the hardest hit cities during the depression, how could a man like that ever afford to buy a piece of property.
0: Right.
1: And so that's when I started digging about the economy. And they ended up down at an island south of Groceal. So and he was Scottish. Right. So I bet my bottom dollar he got into bootlegging and that's how he got into the that shady element. Seventy five percent of the liquor in the United States during the prohibition came across the Detroit River. 75% 75% of the whole nation's liquor. From Canada? Yes.
0: Wow. Yes,
1: because it was legal in Canada. And the Detroit River is only a mile wide.
0: Oh, wow. So, so that must have been doable. Another author mentioned this. This bootlegging across the river. K- okay. Oh, so wow. Here's the second one. Oh, it must be true then. I haven't heard uh, much about that. Oh, the it, it seventy five percent of the entire volume came from the north rather than from the south. As yep, it's came from the north. Portrayed in the movies, it's a different story, right? Yeah,
1: no, seventy five percent. And the cops turned a blind eye, and the feds would come in. And I've seen pictures of the feds pouring liquor out of windows. Mm-hmm. There were speakeasies all over the place. There are still yeah. in Detroit there are speakeasies that people have renovated right and right. behind doors you know get have the secret knock say the right yeah, words the kind right of speakeasies word. um big huge, huge deals there
0: were that's just interesting yeah so and you think were, that's how he made his money
1: i can't think of any other way
0: right but i it cannot would be think hard of it. to prove right i yeah, mean because, you
1: know if he were still around you know i probably uh-huh. could have asked him th- this right. much later but right. but when you read about how bad detroit got hit um all the factories closed mm-hmm. he was a brand new immigrant he was strong he was strong like a bull mm-hmm. and you know i'm sure that he did odd jobs mm-hmm. um, and i know that he had a truck i know that he had a truck because he would move things for people mm-hmm. um yeah. he was what they call a carter but there was no other way I could figure out. Then it kind of like all fell together where he ended up living, which was this very, and then I, that's another thing I had to, to research. Okay, well, so he had a house on Hickory Island, which is this little teeny island south of Grosseal. Okay. And you got to go through across the river to Grosseal, go through all of Grosseal and go down to this little teeny island. Mm-hmm. And so I went and I looked at maps in the 1930s of what was down there. Very little. I mean, it was unpopulated. It was all woods. I remember it was all woods. I went there every summer. It was all right. woods. Right. So perfect place to bring to bring liquor across, not right in the city, you know, a right. little right. bit downriver. You could hide it in the trees. You know, who'd think of looking at an in, uninhabited island? Um, it just all fell together. So I bounced it off of my sons, and they just thought that that was the most logical way. So he and, then he, the and then I know that he didn't have any trouble dealing with maybe the shadier people in town because he he did deals with the Teamsters. I remember when I was a little girl there was all this hush-hush stuff going on. Yeah. Like he was he, he I think he did I think he washed money for the Teamsters and he was like a front man because he actually went down and bought property in Florida on behalf of the Teamsters but in his name um, for, for some sort of Teamster-related retirement, something or other. I know that's a fact, and they set him up in a fishing business. That's a fact, but he never told anybody. Right. We found right. about it. About it, you know, hush, hush. So he was not a stranger to um, hey, pragmatic, pragmatic business.
0: Pragmatic business. That's very diplomatic. <laughs> well, you know, I, I actually, the company that moved, the Spirit of Detroit. I looked it up.
1: Detroit, it was Dearborn Machinery Movers. Dearborn uh-huh. Machinery Movers. I found an incorporation document in Florida for Dearborn Machinery Movers. Five guys, no, four guys and the secretary, Dorothy. Um, That's another story altogether. And they that was incorporated just shortly before the spirit of Detroit was moved. Uh-huh. And the teamsters yeah. moved it. So I am I would bet good money that mm-hmm. the city of Detroit and the teamsters there were bribes the teamsters had these five four people five guys and a girl you know set up a company to do the business and that's how they owed one another
0: Yep that makes sense right Yep yep <laughs> What was the most gratifying part in writing all this up and researching it
1: Uh a true appreciation of how easy we have it no. Oh my goodness. What these people went through, through. Yeah. when my grandfather was in Scotland, I've seen those row houses that they've lived in. I've been in one mm-hmm. 400 square, 800 square feet, 400 above, four down a row house, like a townhouse that you call it. Now yeah. you, you understand they didn't have utilities. They didn't have, Heat. They didn't have washers and dryers, 10 people in an 800 square foot That's house, horrible. Coal, coal miners, and they'd come back filthy dirty from right. digging Don't coal, right? And so here's my poor great grandmother, you know, and having to wash the clothes after dinner that she had to put on the table you know, for ten people, and hang the clothes by the wood burning stove so they could maybe dry by the next dry. morning because it's damp and cold in Scotland a lot of the time. Just hard, hard life, hard life. Yeah, boy, do right. we have it easy? You know, we were compared about... to that. Yeah, yeah. I, you we know, do. in
0: 1960, Emma. In
1: 1968, I went to visit my my aunt Bessie. Mm-hmm. Now, this is 1968. Right. Okay. I went with her down into town and it's a quaint old stone cobbled town with a green grocer next to the grocer, next to the butcher, next to the baker. You just pick up your stuff little store by little store.
0: Right.
1: Well, they didn't have a car. So we walked into town. She had a little basket in her arm and she was all excited. She was fixing supper for she and her husband, her grown daughter, her son-in-law, her grandson. My grandmother, me, my mother, and my sister. To feed all of us, she splurged
0: and bought one quarter pound of beef. One quarter pound of beef. To feed nine, splurging. nine people. To, or... to feed In nine 1968, people.
1: Right? In 1968. They had no phone. They had no car. They grew vegetables in the back. Um, mm-hmm. She made a big stew. And she flavored it with the beef. That's all she could do, flavor it with the beef. That's how they live in 1968. Have you been back since 1968? Not to to Scotland. No, I I went to England and London and stuff, but I didn't make it back up to Scotland. Okay.
0: So what do you feel you did right in this book, in writing this book? Something that no one could have done it like you. Something that makes it really special.
1: Um, I wove, I interwove the facts and the history of the life with what was happening on the home front. Mm -hmm. Now, my grandfather adored my grandmother. Now, she was old country. And as he, as he rose, and this is the 1950s. And so Mm -hmm. if you think of mad men and all that other stuff, you had to have the corporate wife. Right. The corporate wife, you had to go to dinner with the corporate wife and all the wives came and and my grandmother was very uncomfortable with that. She was an old country girl. Right. You know, she was beautiful and she was a perfect wife. I mean, she looked gorgeous. She dressed well, pearls and little black dresses and um But she didn't smoke. She didn't drink. She didn't go to country clubs. She just wanted to stay home and be a wife. And he kept on trying to drag her into this life she didn't want. And um, he did it because he thought his prime directive was, I'm going to support you well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Her prime directive, I mean, she liked it, mind you, but she didn't like the price she had to pay for it. And they grew estranged. And uh he ended up relying on his secretary for the social part of it i mean she was a bright woman but she was she had she was a spinster she had fallen madly in love with him in fact when i found that document of the incorporation of the business she signed her name uh, his last name was thompson obviously but i changed it in the book she signed her last name dorothy thompson she wasn't dorothy thompson her name was dorothy steinman she was fantasizing she loved him that much okay um and he spurned her until the day he died he he would not marry her he would not marry her Mm -hmm. um but to weave that that part of it the you know the price you have to pay on a personal you know hopefully i did it well i mean i don't hate the guy i understand what he did and if you understand where he came from and understood that his prime directive was to support his family, you know, that's not in and of itself a bad thing. Um, But for him to expect his wife just to come along and be somebody that she wasn't. Right. He, uh, he, he didn't give that enough attention. Not that he, I mean, he tried to help her. He really did try to help her. But mm -hmm. when he realized that she couldn't be that, front-facing socialite that he Mm -hmm. needed when he rose the ranks he left her home and she was fine being left home for a while um but then but then it started to when her she was always about her wee barons man her, her wee barons and she took such good care of us and the neighbor kids and i mean she was amazing and when everyone grew up right and my older son was born on her birthday. She had just died three months before. Oh. Wow. Um, uh, but I kept on saying because had, had I gotten married earlier and had children earlier, she would have been in seventh heaven because that's what she liked to do. She that's what she, that's who she was, right? And
0: right.
1: Um, when all that left and she didn't have any of that anymore, she didn't know who, what to do with herself.
0: Yeah. So what is the major takeaway from the man from Burnt Island? You already mentioned that uh, we have it so good compared to them, right? And then this insight, right, about your grandfather that you had no idea about his duplicity. What else? I
1: think the big takeaway is for every, every, there's a cost and a benefit for everything. Right. And I, I I kind of laid it out there. I, there was no one's a bad guy. No one's a good guy mm-hmm. here. But like on the back, it said he had to make some choices. Did he make the right choices? Yeah. Did he make the right choices? Because the cost to, to, of what he did was to, you know, ruin his marriage. I mean, they never divorced. He, he You know what? He was a man of his word. He said those marriage vows and. He was not going to divorce her ever. He wasn't going to
0: divorce. I
1: mean, he 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 moved away. They didn't live together for the last ten or twenty years, but Mm -hmm. he took care of her. He, He did not divorce her because he made a vow, and that he was a man of his word. You know, that was one of the big things. That is the most important thing. You have to be a man of your word. Yeah. Um. But then, so you know, like I said, it's pragmatic. Did he make the right choices? For him, he thought he did because of what was driving him. Um, interestingly, most of the people who don't like him are, are men who value their relationships more than he did. Okay. But But they're not coming from where he was because we're talking extreme poverty and watching your whole family die and not be able to get... His younger brother, Andrew, was his favorite died in his living room. He was 25. He couldn't afford a doctor. They didn't have insurance back then. You, mm-hmm. He couldn't afford a doctor. He died in the living room. Oh, he left god. a 3-month pregnant he left a 3-month pregnant 21-year-old widow. Oh god. And and my grandfather took her under his wing. My dad says he remembers going to visit her until she remarried finally. Right. Um but so his underlying I think his underlying motivation was noble, take care of his family. Right. The way he chose to do it. Um That was his personal I, thing, right? How he I chose. think I think he felt that was the only way he could do he it. Could especially do it. when right. he saw his brothers falling over dead right and left. Right. I mean I mean that could have been,
0: that must have been horrible. It must have. I can't even imagine. Uh, okay, Wendy, would you like to read to us? We're running out of time.
1: Okay, let me see read to you one moment. I got to take these off to read because I'm for nearsighted
0: about three minutes or so. Yep. Okay.
1: So, the so what I'm reading is, um, they are, they're in Detroit, they've moved to Detroit, and, um, and the little boy, Jack, their little boy is going to school and and they're in Canada. They're not here yet. Okay. They're in Canada. I took Jockey to school today. They tested him. He's good with his, all his numbers and letters. Says he's getting into class with the fives. Margaret looked proudly at her son. Aye, he's a clever lad. That they say. You taught him well, love. Frank kissed Margaret's cheek as he put down the paper at the end table and went to wash his hands for supper. Margaret set the shepherd's pie and beans on the table, sat down and spooned out supper onto Jack's plate before filling Frank's, leaving her own plate for last. Frank sat down. Jack, would you say grace? Jack bowed his head. Thank you, Lord, for the food on the table, the clothes on our backs and roof over our heads. Amen. As he picked up his fork, Frank said to his son, Jack, are you excited to be going to school? I hear you'll be with the fives, even though you're only four. Big for your age, though. I don't think the fives will know unless someone tells them. I'm nicht skierter. Frank looked directly at his son. You know, son, there will be many children that will be speaking Canadian English. They might not understand you well. I think it will be easier for you to speak more like I do. Suppose you can try that. Jack sat up straight and pulled his chin in a bit. He did his best imitation of his father, even lowering his pitch as much as he could. Son, do you suppose you can speak like me? Margaret and Frank let out peals of laughter. Yes, Jack, just like that. That was fantastic. Frank reached over and patted Jack on the head. This was Frank, you know, trying to adapt to the new... To, to the new environment yes, and trying very, to bring his whole family along with him.
0: Very good. All right, Wendy, would you like to give us the details of your book giveaway? Okay, I have a book giveaway. If you go to
1: www.quitandquinn.com Q-U-I-T-T-A-N-D-Q-U-I-N-N.com, You will see a comments section there. Contact me. The 10th person who contacts me, I will provide them with a hard copy, hard-bound, hardcover copy of The Man from Burnt Island. Number 10 wins. Number 10.
0: All right. Can you repeat the website again? Really quickly.
1: www.quittand.com. Q-U-I-N-N dot com. Excellent. Now, really quick
0: parting shots from you. What would you like to leave our listeners with? Uh,
1: I I think that if you like history, if you like American Depression history, and if you really want to understand what life might have been like for millions of people who came in the early 20, uh, 1900s. I would really suggest this book. It'll give you an insight that you might not have.
0: Sounds fascinating. Okay, and my parting shots are write indie, buy indie, and read indie. Read your local newspaper for inspiration. Keep your fingers on the keyboard and your butt in the chair. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye bye.